So the theme tonight is anti-racism and Buddhism. Um, and it, I'll admit right away, it's humbling to give this talk. You know, I, I as a white person with, a, with my white privilege, with all my biases, I'll be talking about this. Um, and of course, the occasion is that this is the first Monday of Black History Month. And so I wanted to acknowledge it in some way. Um, one person from the past that I want to honor is Dr. Carter Woodson. Dr. Carter Woodson, I, I don't feel this man gets enough credit. He's, he's called the father of black history. Um, he was really the first person to make a serious academic study of the African-American experience. And in the 1920s, he organized what he called Negro History Week. And he put it in the middle of February because, first of all, the birthday of, Feb of Frederick Douglass is somewhere around the middle of February. We don't know the exact day, but it was somewhere, somewhere around the middle of February. And, of course, Abe Lincoln's birthday is the 12th. Um, I think at that time, back in the 20s, there was still this, this sense of, um, how can I say, like Abe Lincoln freed the slaves, so he was seen as like the, the great example of the white ally. Um, I think, you know, the, the appreciation of Lincoln is a little more nuanced now. Um, but at any rate, he, he was promoting this week in February, and then after he passed away in the 60s, they decided to expand it to a month, and it became Black History Month. And so re really, Dr. Carter Woodson is the reason we have Black History Month. Um, and it's, it's unfortunate that his name is so unknown. So anti-racist work, one, one way I want to frame this is that if you think of the changes, say, from the 40s or the 50s until today, um, It was egregious what could what could take place in the the forties or fifties. You know, you could have a sign up, you know, whites only, you know, or you could have a, a policy, you know, only whites could sit at the counter, you know, this this company only hires whites, you know, this sort of thing. You could be very explicit with signs and things in writing. Um, of course one of the things that's changed now is that you can't be explicit in writing anymore. You can't have the sign up anymore, you know. It may be that a company still is extremely biased in its hiring or promotion practices, but they can't print that, you know, that kind of thing. Um, another thing that I think has really changed is that the word racist has, has um, acquired a tremendous moral weight in the sense that nobody wants to be called racist, you know, and even people who have incredibly racist views will go through all kinds of contortions explaining why, well, but I'm not racist, you know, this kind of thing. There's such, there's such moral weight to that word now. Um, but in some ways, you could say that, say from, from the 50s until now, We've changed all the things that are easy to change. Now, some hard things have, have been changed also. Um, 
but it's it's almost the nature of of this the how can I say it's the nature of the situation that easy things get changed first and then we're you're left with the harder problems you know um and it's so human i mean it i think it plays out in so many different areas i you know when i think of my own spiritual life you know any any growth that could have happened just from a a shift in attitude or something like that that happened long ago and you know the the problems i'm left with in my life having meditated for decades are the intractable problems that that I, you know, are not shifting very easily, you know, and I think, you know, long-term relationship dynamics, I think lots of dynamics play into this pattern. Um, What's tricky, I think, about this moment in history is that so much of what what it would require for America to move forward is for whites to come to terms with their role in all of this, um, for whites to come to terms with white privilege. And a lot of that involves going into the body. And that is inevitably challenging because going into the body involves confronting vulnerability, or confronting fear and grief and anger and shame and rage and loss and everything else that we hold in the body. Um, So I'm going to pause for a second and just talk about, I want to talk about a little bit of history just to frame this. Um, There's a story about the relation of the the mind to the body that is easily 2,000 years old. And it goes back, um, it probably has roots in in the early, in the ancient Near East. Um, The story is that the, the mind, the rationality, is pure and is the part of us that that can achieve redemption, you know? And the body is inherently corrupt and um, if left to its own devices would destroy itself and needs to be um, regulated and disciplined in order to have any kind of salvation, you know? So this is this, is this basic story. Um, it got a big boost from Plato and from Neoplatonists and then got worked into Christianity and, and has been a big part of Western civilization for quite some time. Um, it was certainly questioned by the Romantics, um, questioned in a big way by the Romantics, and then in the 20th century, first with psychoanalysis and then with you know, somatic therapies and everything else, now we have a very different counter-narrative, you know, that... In fact, there's wisdom in the body and that, you know, being in the head is actually a relatively unhealthy way to be. Um, but this narrative still has, you know, even even in places where we question this narrative um, and, and have a powerful counter-narrative, um, there's still tremendous power to this narrative and it still... It, it still plays out in many places in society, this, this privileging of the head, this denigration of the wisdom of the body and, 
you know, the, the person who is in their body is not as, you know, serious or, or whatever as the person who can explain something rationally, you know, this kind of thing. So this, this powerful dynamic of mind and body um, was very much in place in the 17th century when the idea of race was manufactured. And in many ways, the idea of race fit into that binary, you know, so that white people were identified as the mind people the people who were, you know, theoretically the more rational, the more controlled, and according to this screwed up ideology, black people were more like the body who needed to be, you know, they could only find um, redemption through being regulated or controlled, you know, this kind of thing. Um, And it's almost horrifying to put this in words. I mean, certainly this was the logic of slavery in the United States. Um, And again, as much as we question this narrative now, it it still plays out now in, in the way that black bodies are policed or, you know, this sort of thing. Now, some of you may be familiar with a writer, Raisma Menekin, who is, uh, he, he was the author, among other things, of a book, My Grandmother's Hands. Um, he's a, an author for whom I have a, a tremendous amount of respect. He calls himself a somatic abolitionist. Um, and I, I love that idea, the idea that, that the anti-racist work starts in the body. You know, and he makes the point that the the jabber jabber, the the head, like you know, let let's talk about anti-racism. That changes very little. It it's it's only when we start doing the exercises of dropping into our body and aware, you know, the awareness of when am I locking up in fear? When am I truly relaxing? You know, this sort of thing. And it's, um, how can I say, what's poignant about this moment in history is that first of all, our society is in so many different places. Like if you consider just the vast sweep of American society, we're in so many places with respect to this conversation. You know, you know, here I am in Berkeley, California, talking about, you know, the importance of going into the the body and acknowledging wisdom of the body to, you know, to people who just sat 40 minutes in silent meditation, you know, um, a slightly more receptive audience than other parts of the country. Um, And I think it's astonishing how much, um, anger, defense, and reaction we're seeing um, toward anything that moves toward anti-racism. There's a theory on the far right, replacement 
theory. Now, some of you may be familiar with that there's this, somehow there's this deep state, this cobble that is intentionally replacing white people with people of color, you know, this kind of thing. Um, and again, it, it's, it's ridiculous to put it into words. Um, but the thing that actually fascinates me is that something like replacement theory, it's, I mean, as a, as a description of the external world, it's nonsense, um, but it's a fascinating outpicturing. And how to say it, the, um, the idea of a deep state, a deep state that's running the show, is actually a very powerful metaphor for the nature of the unconscious which in all of us is a kind of deep state that's running the show, you know. Um, and here I'm being very Jungian. Um, and of course in the person who's, who's being defended against, who's defended against anti-racist work, you know, the, who's holding some a theory like replacement theory, um, they're profoundly resisting anything that their body is saying, anything that their unconscious is saying, um, they're, as it were, demonizing their unconscious. And so it's, it's this, uh, and then all that gets outpictured. I think it's a question for all of us. How do we relate to the places inside us that we've othered? How do we relate to our, the otherness within? The, the places that we've said, I don't want to feel that. I don't want to go there. You know? How do we relate to our internal otherness? Because I think in many ways, we wind, we wind up relating to external others the way we relate to our internal otherness. You know, in, in many ways, I think the, the most that any of us can hope to do is, is you know, following uh, Gandhi's dictum, we can try to be the change we'd like to see in the world. Um, to what extent can I relate with curiosity and love to my own inner otherness? in a way that actually allows me to relate with curiosity and love to external others, you know. So I'll share the quote sheet. First I'll share it with the Zoomies. God knows if I've made enough copies. Every week I make more copies, and then every week the room is more crowded, so. So, I'll keep one for myself. Pass these this way. 
So at the top, there's a, a lovely Amish proverb. I love the Amish. And it just says, instead of putting people in their place, put yourself in their place. From Mother Teresa, if we have no peace, it is because we have forgotten that we belong to each other. Thomas Merton said, the whole idea of compassion is based on a keen awareness of the interdependence of all these living beings, which are part of one another and are involved in one another. Marie Marie Louise on Franz, the great Jungian, said, The healing hero, therefore, is one who finds some creative way out, some way not already known, and does not follow the pattern. Ordinary sick people follow ordinary patterns, but the shaman cannot be cured by the usual methods of healing. He has to find the unique way, and the only way that applies to him. The creative personality who can do that then becomes a healer and is recognized as such by his colleagues. You know, and I think in our time, more and more, all of us are are called to follow that kind of individual path. Nelson Mandela said, Our human compassion binds us to one to the other, not in pity or patronizingly, but as human beings who have learned how to turn our common suffering into hope for the future. Desmond Tutu said, God's dream is that you and I and all of us will realize that we are family that we're made for togetherness, for goodness, and for compassion. The Dalai Lama says quite simply, if you want others to be happy, practice compassion. If you want to be happy, practice compassion. Joan Halifax, also a great Buddhist teacher, said, compassion has enemies, and those enemies are things like pity, moral outrage, and fear. Carol Christ said, Man, it was said, had two natures, a rational and an animal or bodily nature. These two natures, as it was thought, were continually at, a, at war with each other. Whereas reason should have been able to rule the body, all too often it seemed the body asserted its own needs and desires. The practice of asceticism in the East as well as the West arose out of the attempt to control the unruly body through denial and sometimes punishment. While women also practice asceticism, The literature of asceticism, written primarily by men, is filled with images equating the temptations of the body with women and the female body. Instead of accepting the changing body as part of the self, asceticism attempted to destroy it, great cruelty to the self and the body have too often followed the fruits of this view, have been the fruits of this view. Daniel Goldman, the neuroscientist, said true compassion means not only feeling another's pain, but also being moved to help relieve it. Sharon Salzberg, the Buddhist teacher, says, we need compassion and courage to change the conditions that support our suffering. These conditions are things like ignorance, bitterness, negligence, clinging, and holding on. She also said, when we contemplate the miracle of embodied life, we begin to partner with our bodies in a kinder way. Um, Steve Goodyear said, 
Get yourself grounded and you can navigate even the stormiest roads in peace. Ibram Kendi said, in the end, hating white people becomes hating black people. In the end, hating black people becomes hating white people. Rupi Kaur said, it was when I stopped searching for home within others and lifted the foundations of home within myself, I found there were no roots more intimate than those between a mind and a body that have decided to be whole. Christy Bowman said, our bodies play a huge role in the accomplishment of our goals and our overall happiness. Embodiment is about turning our physical bodies and learning, learning ways to support our health and well-being so that we can do what we need to do and enjoy our journey. Sherry Pallant said, let your body call you back to yourself, into your most deeply embodied self. Land, dive, soar, find the crumbs that lead back home. Mohadesa Najumi said, You are not always right. It's not always about being right. The best thing you can offer others is understanding. Being an active listener is about more than just listening. It is about reciprocating and being receptive to someone. Everyone has woes. No one is safe from pain. However, we all suffer in different ways. So learning to adapt to each person, knowing your audi- know your audience, and reserve yourself for the people who have earned the depth of you. And I'll just say that line, we all suffer in different ways. It, in my mind, it is just one of the ways that it, it is just, it's unimaginable how different each one of us is in terms of both how we struggle and, and things that are easy to us. Like we're all so unimaginably different from each other. It, it always astounds me. Hung Curley said, A true healer is one who heals himself first so that others can benefit from his own healing. Dr. Devon McDermott says, Trauma stays with us for a long time, often our whole lives. But here's the really tricky part. Trauma lives in the nonverbal parts of the brain. That means that traumatized people often don't have words to remember or explain their trauma. Trauma reactions can sneak up on them, sometimes without warning, and they might have a really hard time explaining what's happening to them. Elizabeth Eiler said, In the vessel of your body, you yourself are the world tree, deep roots in the earth, and a crown of stars. Your essence bridges dimensions. And Alethea Luna said, Now more than ever, society is in need of sensitive and empathic people. Now more than ever, the human race needs to go inward and connect with the soul again. As natural-born healers, intuitives, and mentors, it is not only our responsibility, but also our destiny to help heal humanity.